eventually you're just going to move to where the most capital efficient markets are. Unfortunately, with CFI and CFI lending, we we confused leverage with capital efficiency. Now, I think there's an element that's transparency in addition to capital efficiency, because you want to know that your counterparty is at least going to be around for the next week, month, quarter. All right, everyone, welcome to the very first episode of Bell Curve. We actually had episode zero that went live before, but Jason, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. I'm excited about this. Yeah, me too, man. Um, all right, we're going to be giving you guys an intro. In case you guys, uh, just a refresher for what Bell Curve the show is. Bell Curve is a two-part show per week, and it's divided into different seasons. So in season one, Jason and I are going to be going over a thesis, which we call the DeFi credit boom, which is we're going to be talking about the unlock that fixed income lending is going to have in crypto. Uh, we did We detailed the entire thing out in episode zero, so definitely go back and listen to that. It's only like 10 minutes. You only have to bear through so much of Jason. Aha. Sorry, buddy. Uh, but it's 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 good. It, re- <laughs> it says, says Mike number two, which you'll get it. We'll get into why Mike is Mike number two. But uh, yeah, yeah. Just How be careful you? who I you're feel, roasting here. I feel betrayed. I feel betrayed. Uh, but the TLDR <laughs> of that basically is we've got a thesis. We're exploring it in three parts. Part one of the thesis, we're calling it the death of CFI. That's what Michael and Vance are going to be talking about with us today. So that's all of the, the recent implosion in CFI is going to push a bunch of activity out into DeFi. That marginal activity is going to cause a big boom and renewed interest in DeFi. One of the unlocks that we're going to get is the transformation from variable into fixed rate interest. That fixed, the ability to borrow at a fixed rate is going to lead to a renaissance in DeFi credit markets. There are going to be a whole bunch of different structured products on top of that, uh, that fixed, that fixed rate ability. And then we're going to see, uh, that's going to be a big part of the next boom, uh, the next, the, next bull cycle. Um, so today we're going to be talking to Michael and Vance basically about part one of that thesis, which is what are the repercussions, the second order ramifications of the recent implosion in CFI, uh, and what type of activity is that going to push out into DeFi and what their thesis is for DeFi in the next bull market. Exactly. Let's get into the show. Let's do it. All right, everyone. We got episode number one of Bell Curve joined by uh, Mike One and Mike Two. It's still TBD on who is Mike One and who is Mike Two. And then we got uh, we got the real alpha coming from Vance today. Uh, this is episode one of a seven part series that we're doing, uh, exploring what is gonna kick off the next uh, bull market, specifically around fixed rate lending. Uh, this entire episode is about kind of the death of CFI and, and the kicking off of, of DeFi. So Mike, you wanna do the uh, honors to uh, to kick this show off? You want, you want the first question of the first episode of the first season of bell curve yeah i i i'll, I'll michael I'll, I'll pose this to you because you actually were the one who used this on a, on a phone call with me you talked about uh you know everything that we just saw in cfi is going to be basically cfi is done we're moving into a new era of DeFi. Can you just like walk us through why you think that is what's the thesis yeah so uh to be specific i would say centralized finance as it relates to crypto finance is uh just really having a tough time right now uh when everything uh was living in an opaque unregulated uh and uh when all dust is done with settling uh we'll see how how shady it potentially was but um in a potentially shady way as well it's really hard to be able to put trust in, into those institutions anymore. Um, and, and what I'm referring to is everything from, you know, the Celsius, uh, Voyager, um, uh, bankruptcies and, um, you know, everything else that has happened over the, basically the last four months. And, uh, it's really, it's really difficult to not see in the, in the future, those types of institutions will need to be regulated like financial institutions in, in the way that we would trust a bank or a, or a 
a traditional lender. Um, and I think that that potentially breaks their business model. They don't have the ability to get regulated right now. They don't have, you know, the strength uh, of the balance sheet to be able to go off and compete with traditional financial lenders. Um, and so you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And, and what I think this does at the same time is it gives an opening for DeFi protocols who actually very well performed throughout all of this consternation and, and violent upheaval, uh, liquidation, everything. Uh, DeFi performed pretty well throughout. Uh, you know, there were liquidations, nothing really broke uh, tangibly, um, and uh, everything kept on humming along. I think that was probably more of a feature um, of the over-collateralization and, and basically the lack of uh, capital efficiency that you potentially had with uh, with centralized uh, crypto finance lenders, but you, you don't have the rehypothecation or the off-sheet balance sheet uh, or off balance sheet transactions that you would have uh, if it was centralized and, and not on chain and transparent. So there's a lot going on, but um, you know, ultimately, kind of the way that I put it when we talked, Mike, was you know, CFI lost and, and DeFi is kind of remaining to be the victor. Yeah, I'd love to get a little bit concrete. I don't want to like rehash the whole three arrows Celsius Voyager uh, stuff. That's pretty been pretty done. I want to start talking about like second order effects, right? Um, so let's say like one one of the the first order effects, right, is that CFI is basically delevered, right? And like the stats that I've kind of got is like these CFI lenders were kind of running at like six times leverage. They've taken that down to like one or one point five. Um, and basically they're just kind of in like a frozen wait and see type state. So I'd love to get like concrete thoughts from you guys about what were the services that like centralized lenders, exchanges, et cetera, that were providing to the market, who is no longer going to be able to be served by those? Like what type of activity is going to move off of those platforms and like find a new space in DeFi? Yeah. So the, the way that we borrowed just to break it down when we do borrow, um, there's a few different kind of sources. One is just like on exchange leverage. So, you know, you lever up uh, an ETH position, you know, you go like on the perp swap, you know, 10 to 100x, whatever your your flavor of leverage is, you can do that. Um, for us as an institution, places like Genesis, places like, um, places like Genesis, places like uh, Nexo, um, like that's kind of like another source. Like we, we kind of stuck to like the Genesis side of that market. But the other kind of side of the institutional lending desk is like the, the BlockFi's, the Celsius's, the Voyager's. And, and those are the ones that I think are probably not going to be around anymore. The ones that were like taking in retail customer deposits and lending them out. And, you know, Genesis will serve kind of like most institutions that go up to them that have good creditworthiness, KYC, good balance sheet. I don't know what the process for Voyager Celsius underwriting was. I mean, like ex post facto, it doesn't appear that it was very strong, but like those are the people who will no, who will no longer be in the market. And if you think that, you know, Celsius was lending out, you know, half of its book at the peak, maybe that's like five to 10 billion. Voyager is probably like another billion. Um, Celsius, like, you know, like you could probably get towards like, okay, there was like 10 billion of like net leverage that was lent out by those people. And that's the stuff that frankly is gone. And I think, you know, that is domino effect into places like Genesis tightening up their balance sheet as well. I think for us, the question is now like, okay, there's, there's cheaper rates in DeFi than in CFI. And so, you know, why would we use, you know, CFI if we really, you know, didn't have to? And I think the answer is basically like, you can get white glove service, you can get like, you know, billing statements, you can get all that stuff. But like that, that's kind of trivial in the sense of like on-chain lending, like all of the information is on-chain. There's tax accounting packages that are built around it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good question as to like, do places like Genesis really stick around either? Um, because that is the, the avenue that seems most vulnerable to being disrupted and put on chain. Um, 
And so, yeah, I think this all happens in probably the next six months. Like Genesis is going to figure out pretty quickly that um, there isn't quite as much borrowing demand as there mm -hmm. once was. And any borrowing demand that there is, is rapidly moving on chain. Uh, and they're moving on chain for a couple of reasons. The rates are cheaper. And I think the underwriting is actually more advanced on chain at this point. Like if you look at things like Maple and the credit Oracle that they use, you know, they use an Oracle, which basically can tell uh, them what our balance sheet is doing without exposing our positions to them. And that's like perfect. You know, that's what Genesis and all of these big lenders should have been doing. Um, and DeFi is just leading the way on innovation with underwriting and risk. Vance, do you think that some of this lend and borrow, uh, especially the retail lend and borrow in the next cycle, will it basically get consolidated under the exchanges? Uh, like, will, will Coinbase and Binance and FTX almost play the function of like Nexo, Celsius and, and BlockFi in the next cycle? Or will it not even, or will the exchanges not even play in that market because of they learn their lesson, they see how it played out with some of these uh, lend and borrow only platforms and, or, or will it all move to DeFi? What, what do you think there? It's, it's worth noting that, uh, the lending, I mean, like if you look at like the, I mean, if you look at like the FTX margin lending book, or if you look at Coinbase's like nascent lending program, um, or you look at like Binance's lending program, like those are for the institutions. Retail can't get access to that. But like, I generally see institutional borrowing moving away from like the genesis of the world towards the exchanges because it's like a more holistic package. They can cut your fees. They can reduce your lending rate. They can charge you on custody. They have like a larger business model around lending than just the lending desk themselves. And so I see like them eating that lunch specifically. But for consumers, like they still can't get any credit from these exchanges. And so like the highest and, and best use of their capital in terms of, you know, getting leverage is on chain. And I think that's really kind of where the vortex uh, in terms of like the black hole liquidity comes from, um, where places like Celsius and Voyager were kind of like servicing that retail demand before. But now that those places are going to be gone or regulated like banks, like the only place for that capital to go if it wants to get borrow lend is on chain. And so, you know, for one reason or the other, it'll get there. And I think by the next bull cycle, um, I don't know if, if we're going to ever see another Celsius or Voyager again. Uh, I'm just not sure how that would play out. So you think a lot of the institutional borrow lend stays potentially with these big exchanges and then the retail borrow lend is what drives into DeFi? Maybe to jump in there, I think it's a mismatch of product capabilities and needs right now, but that changes very rapidly over time. Uh, yeah. it, it's the ease of use. It's as we were talking about, like the fact that our CFO can get a, a brokerage or a bank statement or some you know printout statement every month from Genesis to say, hey, here's what your invoice is. Um, you know, that's just one product cycle away from being something that's built into a DeFi protocol as well. So I, I, I don't think that it's really going to stay. I think it's just right now there's a mismatch, but it's rapidly changing. And frankly, if you can start to get more capital efficiency on chain, uh, you're going to have a, a much deeper desire to go on chain. Like eventually you're just going to move to where the most capital efficient markets are. Unfortunately, with CFI and CFI lending, we, we confused leverage with capital efficiency. Now I think there's an element that's transparency in addition to capital efficiency because you want to know that your counterparty is at least going to be around for the next week, month, quarter. Um, you know, th that, that's a tough position to be in from an institution. The, the other, the other last part that I would say, like, that we think about when we borrow and, and, um, like on DeFi, you know, you have like the Oracle prints, like you can kind of update tenderly to notify you if your positions are getting close to, you know, being in trouble. Um, with CFI, they'll just like give you 48 hours. 
And, you know, it's like, that's nice. Um, but I think overall, we prefer the transparency relative to counterparty risk for really large sums. Um, and I think that is like the exact opposite of probably how we felt a year ago. Mm. What made you, is the, is the reason for that switch just like, is the ultimate thesis here really about opacity when it comes to, because I think this was like, a, a lot, we're not just talking about like an insignificant, like, oh, there was like one bad actor in the centralized lending space. It was like, arguably the majority, right? And if they weren't like outright bad actors, it was like, it, at the very least, there's a lot of irresponsibility, I think, going on. I, I, we fortunately never really ran into this issue, but imagine a situation where you call up a bank and you're like, hey, I need to get my capital back. I need to get my dollars back. I need to get my assets back. And they're like, hmm, sorry. That's a really tough position to be in, especially you know, when you're trying to you know, manage multiple positions, manage multiple counterparties, manage you know a, a wide array of active participation as we are, um, and and you know this is all the the framework labs kind of active active side, um, the venture uh, ecosystem for us at least is a lot more vanilla. Um, but the the active stuff, if you're an active participant, like you're spread pretty far, and if one party, one counterparty, gives you kind of like a block. Uh, it, it could have ripple effects throughout, and just hearing the anecdotes of what some of our uh, peers have have run through, and you know what it's like to have that response on the other end, um, you know, it's never something that we wanted to be in a position to have. Michael, the, I mean, really, what you're talking about is just a bank run, right? So all these small lend and borrow platforms saw bank runs. Can you just explain why the idea of a bank run like doesn't? exist as much in DeFi? Like, why, why isn't that possible in DeFi? So, yeah, and, and this is something I, I think I wanted to dig in earlier, but but good time to bring it up now. Um, really, what these centralized platforms were doing, they were taking in assets as collateral. And these assets could be in the form of uh, anything from USDC, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Link, you know, any of the assets that are kind of like commonly used as collateral assets. The problem, though, is that when you have, uh, when you have, when you have liquid, volatile assets as your collateral base, it's very easy, especially in downturns, to be able to get close to a margin threshold where you won't be able to maintain the, the amount of borrow that you have in, in a way that they will accept. And therefore, you'll probably get what's called a margin call. And, and then you'll have to either put up more collateral to pay back uh, to you know, have to put up more collateral to, to re-collateralize or you'll have to pay back some of your loan. What's going on in the background, though, that I think is really important is it's not like Genesis is just sitting there and saying, OK, you have 100 BTC here and you've borrowed you know, $50,000 and then we're, we're just managing this as a separate account. They've got hundreds of accounts. They've got thousands of accounts. And they're rehypothecating these borrow and lending scenarios where they're taking the Bitcoin that you have as collateral and they're lending it out to somebody else. And what happens in these types of situations is, you know, imagine we're getting stuck uh, just because we have three or four counterparties. Well, imagine you multiply that by 100 and you're, you're talking about a centralized provider. Um, and, you know, it, it could have been any of these and, um, you know, just using Genesis as the example. But it could have been any of these that you, know, you go back to them and you say, hey, I want to get my Bitcoin back. And they say, mm, sorry, can't do that right mm -hmm. now. And you basically have to wait for them to either have the term loan end or you have to pay back the collateral or you just kind of have to hope that they don't end up margin calling you mm -hmm. and, and selling your collateral to pay back your loan that you have with them. So it, it you know these types of situations become pretty hairy pretty quickly, but when you don't have the ability to view through to where your collateral is as you would in DeFi, 
that's where you really get into a, a potentially tricky situation. And once again, I, I think that's where we confuse leverage with capital efficiency. Mm. So ultimately, what we're talking about here is just two different models of providing financial services, right? And in this one model, you have kind of the legacy model, which is this opaque bank. And the risk there is you have no transparency into what's actually going on. But two, your assets aren't actually yours, right? Now, like the thesis is that a lot of people that were going to these basically shadow banks, right, for financial services, they're actually going to go to this other, you know, source for different types of uh, products and services, which is DeFi in general. Um, and I think there's probably like what we've been largely talking about is the ability to speculate. So to take out leverage, but then also like further off, there's actually like legitimate products and services that like, like hedging, right? Your risk in a business or doing longer term borrowing and lending, like real, like real economy type stuff. I think those things walk hand in hand because usually those, uh, those services require a mark, like a deep market of speculators. Um, but let's actually just walk through like what one thing that I don't understand is let's talk about the leverage side of things first. So right now, when you go to somewhere like Genesis, they're actually leveraging that that flawed model of rehypothecation to provide you a loan, right? They're kind of underwriting you guys at framework and they're being like, all right, these guys have a pretty good track record. They've got some capital, like in case things go, go sideways, like, and then they write you the loan. How does that work in DeFi? Like how does leverage creation happen in a DeFi type scenario? Yeah, it's it's pretty simple. Um, you send funds to a contract, um, and it's like a it's a like a buy asset type of contract. And so, like you're sending it to like you know uh, an ETH pool on Aave. Um, and then once you have that, uh, you basically get what's called a, an LP token. So like you get a mm. ETH. And then once you have that, you can access their USDC liquidity, and you can borrow up to uh, I think it's like you know, probably, uh, if the value of your, if the value of your collateral, uh, dips lower than 120% of your mm -hmm. loan, that's when you get right. liquidated. So like, you know, the, that's about the most you can borrow in terms of, you know, those dynamics. Um, and like, usually when we borrow, like we'll put up like, you know, a lot of collateral, like two or three X, the amount of loan that we have. And if it ever drops down, like we'll retop it out. Um, and that's kind of how it works for all of retail today. And the thing about if you look at Aave, they have variable rates, but then they have kind of like fixed rates, which like get adjusted every probably like month or two or quarter. Like they're not exactly fixed. Um, and so you can kind of lock in your you know cost of capital to some degree. And so that's kind of like Aave. When you look at Maker, which is a different way that you can kind of you know get leverage in DeFi, what they're doing is you're putting ETH in a contract and you're drawing DAI against it. And you know, people aren't holding DAI and lending it to you. That protocol is literally creating that DAI out of thin air backed by that collateral. Um, and, you know, the, the benefits of that model relative to something like Aave are the loans are, are, or the rates are usually a little bit cheaper um, because you're borrowing DAI, not USDC. Um, you know, they don't have to have someone source and provide the USDC to Aave. Um, you know, they can just create it out of thin air like they do with Maker. Um and yeah, it's it's a little bit different of an approach, but that's generally how leverage works in, in DeFi. That's, um, I mean, the big difference there between like how we talk about leverage in crypto, like the what you just described and how leverage is typically referred to in TradFi is that's over collateralized and over collateralized model versus if you trade like options or, if you, or like basically any type of derivatives in TradFi, it's under collateralized. Um, I, I was going to maybe double click into that perspective in particular, we're starting to see with um, things like GMX and right. um, you know, some of the new uh, decentralized trading protocols um, where options and decentralized perpetual futures, as they've been traded on centralized venues like BitMEX and Deribit, 
um, they're actually becoming viable in DeFi as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so with a, a pretty strong uh, liquid market, you, you can get leverage from a perpetual future or an option, for instance, um, which isn't the exact same process as what Vance is talking about. It's it's a little bit different, but you, you can kind of get a more capital efficient model as you would have in centralized finance in DeFi mm-hmm. now. Can, can you explain how that works, actually? Because my understanding, like at a bank, right, they send you like a line of credit. Um, how does that work in, in a DeFi scenario? It's very similar to the the limitations and controls that you would have uh, in in the comparison of like an Aave or a Maker to a centralized lending platform. Um, if you put money into BitMEX, BitMEX is a centralized uh, provider. They will take your Bitcoin, they will use it as collateral, and then you'll be able to trade off of that collateral pool with some you know leverage effect. And let's say you go up to fifty x leverage. Something like a 2% move down means that, or up, means that your entire collateral that you have to trade against is gone. Uh, and their liquidation engine manages all of that and liquidates the Bitcoin and sells it on market. And, um, and, 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 you know, that's how it works. That's also generally the way that it works in DeFi, but you're putting up, uh, collateral that is then managed by a protocol as opposed to a centralized entity. The, the major difference here, once again, is, uh, it's probably not as fast because it's not centralized and as, blockchains get faster, it'll become more and more capital efficient in that respect, but it is much more transparent. You can see what all of your your assets are in that wallet, all your positions are in that wallet, uh, and you, you can trust that it's a unified Oracle model that's updating the liquidation engine and then processing everything on chain. And I know that historically centralized uh, trading venues have had issues with people just kind of like randomly getting liquidated, even though they didn't expect to be. Um, so I, I think it becomes more fair and transparent. Um, but then that also provides the ability to have potentially cross margin mm-hmm. where you can use some positions that are maybe in that protocol, in that platform that are a perpetual future or an option as an asset that you could then cross marginalize with, with something like, you know, a loan or, or something that you would borrow against. So there, there are kind of advantages to having that transparent nature, which is maybe the next step uh, uh, above where we are right now. But that's, I think, directionally where things are going. Mm-hmm. I feel like folks have been talking about DeFi options and, and DeFi derivatives for a while now. Why, why haven't they taken off yet? I, I think a couple reasons. The first one is um, like blockchain just have not been fast or cheap enough for you to really run uh, these like protocols, which require you to, you know, update every 0.0005% you know, price change, the Oracle and the actual system. Um, so that's been one challenge. It's also been like historically very expensive for people to do it on ETH1. Like we've, we've kind of only had really blockchains that are fast, cheap and reliable enough for the past like six or nine months for this to really happen at scale. And like DYDX is like an interesting example, but you know, like they didn't write any of their own code on Starkware. Um, that wasn't really something that like, had a long-term future. Um, and so I think a lot of people had trouble adopting that as a result and getting to that platform and, you know, depositing it in something that frankly is more of like a centralized custodial model um, didn't also check all the boxes for us in terms of, you know, why we would use DYDX versus something like a Binance. Um, longer term, I think, you know, it's, I believe that, you know, like basically all retail will eventually converge on decentralized venues. Um, It'll be faster, it'll be cheaper, it'll be more transparent. You'll have more visibility into how the insurance fund works when things you know that are bad happen. Um, you'll have more guarantees on the Ethereum side that the protocol will continue running in perpetuity versus things like BitMEX, which you know have notably shut down in periods of high volatility and liquidated people. Um, and generally, it's just like the most global platform for people to trade on. And 
there's many benefits of that. You know, also like you can get tokenized ownership of it. You can give that to your users. Like the same playbooks that we saw work in DeFi will work in DeFi derivatives. It, in my opinion, it's mostly just been a timing thing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that is DeFi derivatives. I, I think that personally, like the people who crack that are, are going to be some of the largest protocols in crypto. Like if someone airdropped you into crypto and told you to point to where the profit centers were, you know, it would be the perps and the options platforms. Um, so on the, on the perp side, I think that that's a product that's unique to crypto that doesn't really exist in TradFi. And so like options are really big on Robinhood, obviously, but like people have never used perpetual swaps. Like that's like a really amazing product. And I think if that had been in TradFi, options would probably be less popular. I think we're seeing kind of the opposite play out here where first we're going to see adoption of the perpetual swaps. And I think we're starting to see that with synthetics and GMX and DYDX now. Um, and I think, you know, the ones that are fast follows behind that, that require leverage to do things like Delta hedging are the options protocols and people like Lyra. I mean, like we've backed probably four or five options protocols and like, you know, we've just been waiting for one of these to hit. Like Lyra seems like the first one that has like the right confluence of the right ecosystem, the right users, the right user experience. Um, and yeah, we're hopeful, you know, these things just take some time. So, you know, it, to, you know, for folks who are listening who might not be aware of the option or the market for uh, like or options, but definitely derivatives writ large is like many orders of magnitude larger than it is for spot. And that's a relationship that already exists in crypto on centralized exchanges, right? The derivatives market, which is basically just futures for crypto on centralized exchanges, is already larger than the market for for spot is. Um, so I, I guess I, I'd, be, I'd be curious, like, do you guys see what do you think is the catalyst? Is Are you guys just like, you mentioned you've taken a couple of different bets on the space so far. Is it just like, there's not enough liquidity yet? There's not enough people who want to use um, decentralized options? Um, is there something that like gets us from point A to point B or is it just like a matter of time? I, I frankly think it's not really a silver bullet. I think it's a bunch of lead bullets yeah. over time. And we're slowly building out the infrastructure, the liquidity, uh, I mean, think back to six months ago. Basically, nothing was on layer two yeah. from uh, from an Ethereum perspective. Um, you really didn't have any liquidity on any of them either. Uh, so you know, people are just getting used to what it's like to bridge over and be comfortable with that in the first place. I, I don't know about you guys, but like I, I get nervous every single time I touch a bridge, uh, even if it is from L1 to L2. Um, and, and so I, like all of those things are just going to take muscle memory. Um, and I, and I think frankly, one of the things that I, I would love to see is a centralized bridge from L1 to L2, um, you know, maybe a Coinbase supported bridge, you know, optimism, Arbitrum, wherever, um, just because you wouldn't have to use the decentralized version and that would just be become the trustworthy on ramp. Um, so uh, those are some of the things that I, I think about mostly. I think also just give it the backdrop of crypto macro and everything that's gone on over the last few months. Like there's not really a desire <laughs> to jump back into the leverage game anytime yeah. soon. Um, and so it's it's kind of a confluence of a lot of things, but I'd probably say those are the two biggest things in my book. Cool. Um, and I think the reason that we're focusing a lot on just this particular part of it is like speculation has been such a big use case for crypto writ large. So in DeFi feels, it would feel incomplete to not talk about it, but also, um, you know, deep options markets, that's kind of like the clay that you can use to make other types of financial products, right? Like the theme of this season is transforming variable into fixed, uh, interest rates. And you, you can't do that if you don't have a deep and liquid market for options. Um, I, I actually kind of want to transition to like that part of the discussion. Like what are some of the different types of financial products that you guys are excited about in DeFi? Vance, I actually heard you describe this on an old episode of Bankless, uh, where basically like one of the big innovations that DeFi has is you've like 
if you wanted to create a financial product before your path to doing that was like working at Goldman for like 20 years and then making some weird institutional product and like marketing it to the tiny group of people. Whereas now you can be like a 12 year old in Indonesia and like write a, a contract uh, and, and like millions or hundreds of millions of dollars are flowing into it. So like on the actual like services like products that people are going to use in DeFi. like what is the overall advantage of a DeFi versus a cfi system and then what are some of the new products and services that you guys are either investing in an underwriting or that you see coming to market during this this bear cycle uh DeFi relative to cfi advantages i would say there's probably four uh the first is just like global wallet distribution so historically you know like think about like all the Australians in DeFi, Kane and, you know, the whole gang, the GMX guys, like all, all of these people, like historically Australians have been confined to Australia. Like they have not been able to ship global financial products to every country mm -hmm. in the world, but now you have global wallet distribution. And so you write a contract. If you're a kid in Indonesia, if you're a kid in Australia, you can have people in China, the U S Western Europe, Eastern Europe, use it. Like you get instant global distribution. And that's just something that, you know, there are no non-geogated app stores globally. Like if you want approval to launch, launch in one market, it looks very different from another, especially in a category like financial services. So that's the first one. Um, second one is just like composability and just like the ease of development. Um, you know, it's a public blockchain. You can look at somebody's die stable coin. You can put it into your contract. You don't have to go off and build that yourself. You can leverage and stand on the shoulders of everyone who's come before you from a development perspective. Um, and that's what makes, you know, creating an insurance company in 50 to 100 lines of code possible mm. on a blockchain where it's just not possible in a centralized institution. So that's the second one. The third one is just like tokens are very powerful. And that's not something that's endogenous to DeFi itself. It's endogenous to like just this new ownership and governance model that is in crypto. And so if you're building a centralized financial service in Goldman, Goldman owns that, you know, there's like, you're not bootstrapping an ecosystem around it. You're bootstrapping clients around it, but you know, that relationship is not as symbiotic as if you have somebody who uses it, you give them ownership, you give them a reason to come back, you make it more sticky, you direct fees to the token, you can spin the flywheel. It's just this way that to generate more reflexivity, more ownership, more loyalty that doesn't exist in, in TradFi. And I think the fourth part of DeFi, which is, you know, advantageous relative to competitors is just like, this is where the fringe of internet culture is. And you're going to have different things develop on the margins than you will at the core of these, you know, large centralized financial institutions. And so, um, like, uh, you know, like we're, somebody's building a, a inflation protected stable coin. Um, they built that in the last six months. Like, you know, like that's crazy. And, and nobody really builds that in centralized financial institutions. Sure. There's maybe products that service roughly the same area, but like that's net new. You know, people are tokenizing commodities and like figuring out interesting ways to use those in financial protocols on chain. Like there's just this weird fringe, you know, culture that's just pushing things forward at just a much faster pace. And so I think there's basically four benefits and and those are them. No, I mean, that, that's kind of the breakdown that we have of just how we view this space writ large. And Vance kind of touched on this. But there's a lot of elements that aren't necessarily DeFi mm -hmm. specific, but just endogenous to this industry overall. And I think that sort of the the last point of the the crypto native culture is really kind of the the biggest component because right now um it's really interesting and it's cool to be working in web3 and it's the the one area of innovation in the tech industry that if you kind of 
take your your scan around all the different subcategories. Basically, there's like two places to be if you're interested in, in technology. There's like zero knowledge proofs in Web3 or like artificial intelligence and what's going on in AI. And and frankly, the stuff that's going to happen in AI is going to happen at the biggest companies because they have all the data and the trading models to be able to get there. And and so if you want to push something new, if you want to push something that's creative, fundamentally creative, there's only really kind of one substrate to be dealing with right now, and that's Web3. So I, I, I definitely would double click on the internet, um, internet native culture as being a huge component of this whole thing. Let's let's say all this plays out. Let's say we do have this big DeFi credit boom. If you look at the last cycle, there were kind of three, I'd maybe say three buckets of borrowers. You had the retail borrowers, you had the the funds that would borrow capital and, and deploy it because they thought they could earn more uh, than, than the borrow rate. And then you had um like the Bitcoin miners ended up being a big, a big group of borrowers. Who like what is what is the group who leads who who are the borrowers that fuel fuel this next credit boom? Obviously, you probably have those three the funds, the retail folks, and, and the Bitcoin miners. But is there another group that, that hasn't participated that will now participate? I, I actually think so, and that's Ethereum stakers hmm. or Ethereum staking yeah. pools. Um, and hmm. the ability to put even dollars in to a unified staking pool that people are willing to borrow to be able to go off and stake and earn that yield and hedge their price risk. I mean, this is what we're talking about when it comes to things like options or, or perps and the ability to build structured financial products. If you have the ability to hedge the price risk of ETH and earn the nominal real yield, sorry, not the nominal, the real yield of whatever percentage that is in ETH terms, that's a huge uh, advantage product that just frankly isn't even possible uh, in, in most crypto ecosystems right now, and definitely not at the scale that you would have with Ethereum. And, and so I, I think that's actually like one of the most undervalued components, not only of just like what DeFi can build, but also just what the merge mm. means, because it, it, someone's going to pick up that flag and run with it. And it's probably going to be a large financial institution who structurally builds that product. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the incentives for more borrowing are unique to staking like over the next couple of years. And I say that because um, let's say that, you know, you want to start a credit fund. And basically what a credit fund is, is like you are taking on lower risk. You're, you're not like shooting for like a double or a three X or a five X in the next year. You're shooting for like a 10 or 20 percent, um, you know, return and, and you want to do it relatively safely. And generally the types of strategies that these credit funds employ are like lending to other people, uh, basis trading, so like doing cash and carry where you like you buy ETH and then you'll short the perp if it's in uh, Contango and you'll earn yield from that. And then I think like the third kind of arrow that's about to be put in that quiver is like the, the staking uh, carry trade where you borrow USD uh, or, or you have USD, you buy ETH, you stake it, um, you know, like you're earning probably like at this point five or six percent yield. You'll borrow more USD against that. You'll buy ETH again. You'll stake that. And so you've kind of doubled your position at that point. And maybe you're instead of like five to six percent, you're earning like 10%. Um, but it's a relatively safe trade because like you're not just gonna, you know, get blown out unless the divergence between staked ETH and ETH really kind of becomes material, um, which over the next year, you know, should become less of a risk. But like all of the incentives are geared towards these types of trades being the new ones that are put on. Um, and I think the ones that probably become less relevant. Um, in a scenario where ETH just is driving the market is like Bitcoin miner financing. 
Um, and that's historically been like a very healthy area of the credit market because mining is super uh, US dollar intensive in terms of like you have to buy machines, you have to pay people, you have to pay electricity costs. Um, yeah, I mean, after all of the bad loans of this past cycle, that feels like an area where it's probably less of a, you know, like if you have three options in your credit fund manager, it's basis trading, it's lending to miners and it's staking. Um, basis trading and uh, staking feel like the relatively more attractive options and ones where you can actually lever them up and get larger returns. Mm. Um, I have, I actually have a question for you guys about that. You know, the way it was described to me about just variable yields in crypto, like where does that ultimately come from? I think you can trace a lot of that yield, like the ultimate source, the stake rate for major L1s and like really like ETH, the ETH stake rate is like the variable yield. And in finance, you have this concept of the risk-free rate, right? You also have a, a perpetual source of yield in the form of the U.S. government, right, which is like constantly borrowing, right, and then the whole financial market kind of transformed that that debt into various products. So, do you guys view? I mean, in the same way that like Bitcoin borrowers, uh, you know, miners are like a big form of borrow. Do you eventually see kind of like a thriving market for the transformation of that variable stake rate for ETH into something that's fixed? So you get a bunch of like options type activity around that, and then you can build other structured financial products on top of that fixed rate. Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head. Um, it, it stems from the borrow rate or sorry, the the real right. yield rate, which then to be leveraged into structured products based on tenor. Right. And and what I mean by that is you'd basically be able to say, OK, the the ETH real yield, let's say, is going to be somewhere around 5 percent uh, in ETH terms. And then it's going to cost you some amount to be able to get basically the negative price impact of what that would be over a certain period of time, and you're gonna have to pay for that duration. And so it's gonna cost, it, basically it's gonna cost more and more the longer and longer you go out, which means that you're gonna have to pay more for that hedge, but you could also, you know, you could let, ladder it, you could do a bunch of different things. And over time, I, I, th I think we're gonna start to see basically a yield curve for, for what is the risk-free rate of crypto. And that risk-free rate of crypto, I think is gonna be denominated I mean, our, our bias is going to be that it's going to be denominated in some form of the Ethereum yield, the, the Ethereum real yield, because it's the most widely used and it's basically the, the most sustainable that you can assume. What's going to be really interesting, though, is activity and, and bull market, bear market cycles are going to have a real impact on what that risk-free rate is. And what we've seen, at least for, with Ethereum in particular, is that more ETH, not just in dollar terms, but in ETH terms, is consumed basically in the form of revenue for the Ethereum protocol as as prices go up. And it has that effect over time. And so what you can kind of assume is that the risk-free rate will go up over time as, as markets go up, which may be kind of this auto-hedging, yeah. auto-rebalancing effect, where as markets get a little bit you know, bullish or a little bit frothy potentially, you know, you kind of have this this balancing out where like, oh, well, I'm going to go sell some of my assets because it's just like safer for me to hold this this like ETH structured product or this ETH risk-free rate uh, kind of thing. And and it's, it'll be kind of like the shift from like historically you'd see like stocks to bonds where it's like 60-40 and like, ah, let's get a little frothy. Let's move more into bonds. Like I, I could see that being kind of the the thought process that you have over time. The, the irony of what you just just described there is like we're we're talking about this on the day when Jerome Powell uh, is you know divoting his tea leaves right and basically what you're talking about is like a market based pricing for interest rates right where you when you get when things get really frothy the cost of capital goes up that should like turn things over and then there's the same thing on the way down the cost of capital the real yield that you're getting gets cheaper so it encourages people to borrow 
right? Well, yeah. Well, in particular, what I was saying is the risk-free rate, which would be probably a major variable into what you'd consider to be the cost of capital in other places. And if it's risk-free-ish, you know, that, that would be kind of the way, the way that you'd have to assume it. TradFi, the risk-free rate is basically the 10-year, right? Whatever yield you're getting off the 10-year, which the Fed doesn't like directly control, but they control sort of, they control the shallow end of the curve. Um, so let's talk about like you, Vance, you were starting to get into like some of the the fringe experimentation that was going on in, in DeFi. Like what are some of those things that you guys might be interested in? Because really, I think the future that all of us envision here are is DeFi eventually becoming larger than not only the CeFi part of crypto, but even challenging you know, the size and scope of, of TradFi in general. Um, and you need some financial products, right, that people want to use writ large and in mass to do that. So where do you guys see that innovation occurring today, I guess, in DeFi? Or like, what would you be, what are, what are some interesting areas that you guys might be looking at? Yeah, so I, I think, um, like, talking about uh, kind of the four different, like, superpowers yeah. of, of DeFi, uh, which are like, you know, global distribution wallets, um, composability, just the ease of building. If tokens is a new form of just distribution, marketing, incentivization, and then internet culture, I would probably add a fifth, which would be you just have like this endogenous growth of you know wealth within crypto. Mm -hmm. You have you know six hundred thousand addresses that are active on a daily basis. They're super wealthy. Uh, they're willing to try new financial products. You have a hundred billion or, or so of stable coins on chain. You have twenty two million ETH. I think that's you know like almost $40 billion of, of ETH locked in DeFi. So like you kind of have all these interesting things happen, but at the same time in the background you have, you know, and depending on if you're a bull or a bear cycle, but like over time, just like the amount of wealth on chain being created to use these products is increasing so much. And, and like, if you were a traditional FinTech, you would kill for these types of customers. These just like don't frankly exist in, um, you know, traditional finance. Like the, this is like a crypto native thing. And like the crypto native customers are like, some of the most valuable part of the flywheel and that keeps it spinning. And they're not just static, they're growing wealthier. They're trying more things they are bootstrapping new asset classes every single time. And so I think the things that we look for are there's like obvious unchecked boxes. Um, and so like, you know, if you want to look at the categories, you have bar lend, you have spot trading, you have derivatives, you have insurance, you have options, you have fixed rate lending. Um, you have like things for like payment for order flow. You have things like staking, like, you know, those are kind of like, I would say some of those categories have their winners already. Like we don't see many people funding new AMMs to compete against Uniswap. We don't see a whole lot of new borrow lend protocols being funded to compete against Compound Arave. Like that is relatively settled. I think on the innovation side, um, I think, you know, frankly, one of the most innovative and like new things that is especially a little bit new and old is Ethereum and like the the birth of like real internet money and like internet money is a meme obviously, but like being able to create something that people identify as their base asset. Like I would probably say my base asset, same with Michael is ETH. Um, and it's just internet money that's not associated with a specific nation state that pays us a yield. Um, and that we have a lot of confidence using as not only money, but also just like, you know, our largest asset. And so I think that's like relatively new and, um, I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent here, but um, people say that like, you know, the risk free rate of, of ETH is going to really hurt DeFi uh, because like, you know, what DeFi protocol will be able to compete with like 5% real yields. Um, and I think that's like actually the totally wrong way to think about it because when you have 5% real yields and people are staking ETH and they're putting it in DeFi, you're literally like supercharging DeFi with these yields um, and with this additional wealth creation that's happening on a more rapid basis now that it has yield. And so I think like, 
the birth of that specific concept of internet money is like so innovative and it's going to power a lot of use cases that frankly, like we can't even see right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the innovation side, I think, uh, it's kind of this dimension of like, okay, what are the new financial products that we can build? What are the new financial products that we should build? Like can build, I would put like, you know, the wrong intersection of that is like something like squeeze where it's like a really interesting financial product. Like it's really cool on paper, but like nobody actually really wants to trade that because it's like so complicated and like, sure we can build it, but like, should we build it? Like probably we should focus on things that are a little bit, yeah. you know, closer to home in terms of, you know, things that people understand and know, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like the, the really new innovative stuff in DeFi that we've seen as of late. Let me give you a couple examples. So like one is like payment for order flow and, and like the whole wallet dichotomy. So like, if you're Phantom, if you're Zapper, um, you know, if you're Rainbow, if you're any of these wallets, like a lot of these wallets just like frankly have like a monetization mm -hmm. problem. And traditionally how the monetization problem is solved in regular finance is you basically sell your order flow. And this is actually like a really interesting monetization model. The only problem with it in traditional finance is that Citadel is the only person who is basically allowed slash able to bid on any of this order flow. Um, and you know, we've backed a protocol, it's called Dflow. It's, it's basically like the first on-chain payment for order flow protocol where, um, you know, if you're a wallet, you can just plug in Dflow and you have market makers, you have DAOs, you have individuals, you have anybody who can run this software who's able to bid on your order flow ahead of time. So it like decentralizes the process. It opens it up to people just beyond Citadel and it gives wallets like monetization in a box. And like, that is like a new trend where, you know, surprise, surprise, the person who started this protocol was an ex HFT trader at one of the largest HFT shops in the world. Like, this new wave of people coming from Citadel, from Jump, from, you know, HRW, from DRW, like these are the new people who are going to kind of define the DeFi of the next like two or three years. And they're going to bring a lot of the tools and tricks that they learn in these places with them. And so I think like broadly, it's hard to point to like a, a ton of like, okay, like there's 50 new innovative trends here. They are, but like payment for overflow is one MEV is like another. Um, but all of these things are coming from the people who, you know, once kind of ruled the roost in TradFi, which is exciting. Only thing I'd add uh, just to that real fast is I, I, I tend to think of it as like, and historically, I can't remember who originated this concept. Maybe it was Fred Wilson at USV, but like you have basically an infrastructure build out and then an application that's mm. enabled by that. I, I think it were fundamentally in an infrastructure build out phase for the next generation. And a lot of the applications that are working now are the ones that were, were built based off of the last generation of infrastructure. And basically, that's layer twos, that's oracles that work, that's you know, um, wallet solutions that are that are usable. Uh, but right now, like we, we frankly are waiting to see what this next generation is going to be based on what the infra is, yeah. is doing right now. I've, I've got a question, actually, and just a comment, Vance, on that uh, that idea that you know a 5% real yield is really going to hurt innovation. That actually might be more a reflection of the times where basically everyone thinks you need 0% interest rates to fund anything or, or produce any sort of innovation. Because um, like historically, I think that's actually pretty in line with what, uh, what, what yields have been. But I, I guess one thing that, I mean, the, the subject of this like interview series is like just uh, debt debt products in, in crypto in general, which we haven't really seen, like DeFi native debt products. Um, the TradFi equivalent, right, is like when when even they're signaling about the drop of interest rates, that leads to this huge boom across everything, right? So I'd be curious, like, do you ever see a world where, you know, we're talking about uh, real yields based on the ETH stake rate that kind of moderate based on in these like form these very natural kind of boom and bust cycles? Do you ever see when there's like basically a lowering of the real yield and therefore a corresponding drop in the cost of capital. Do you ever see that causing a boom? Because right now, like most of the boom cycles in crypto are based on like new token 
distribution mechanisms, right? Be it like, uh, you know, ICOs or yield farming or NFTs or whatever it is. But theoretically, like a lowering of the cost of capital in crypto should lead to the funding of new projects on the margin and like the way that it does in a, in a TradFi type system. So do you guys ever see a world in which we have this like rich ecosystem of DeFi native debt products? And like that is actually what sparks the boom or like what kicks the cycle off as opposed to more of like the token distribution side of things. I think, I think if you have um, like if, you know, the 10 years at like 3% mm-hmm. right now and, you know, the ETH stake rate is at like mm-hmm. six or 7%, um, you know, like your total costs of, you know, like if you're a rational person, if your cost to convert your USD into ETH, stake it and then hedge out that risk uh, is less than the actual yield that you'll, then you'll get like, you know, that should draw a lot of dollars into the system and drawing more dollars into the system is, you know, fundamentally positive for crypto more interest, more bullishness, you know, more price action, um, that kickstarts part of the flywheel. Um, on the other side, when, you know, you're just like, and that's like kind of like drawing in capital from TradFi to DeFi. And like, I think that's fundamentally positive. Um, and so that could bootstrap part of the cycle. I think on the other side, it's like, if ETH is a 5% real yield, 6% real yield, whatever, um, and you know, that, that's kind of just like the natural, like bar for a lot of the investment that happens in the space. And I think that that also kind of like skews people towards more risk taking behavior, if that is going to be the natural kind of like barrier. Um, and so, you know, more risk taking behavior means more things that are innovative, getting funding. It also probably means that, uh, you know, if you think about how the ETH yields work, basically ETH uh, yields are you know part inflation, but they're also just like revenue for the network. And revenue is calculated as uh, the number of ETH spent per day times the price of that ETH. Um, and for real yields to decrease, basically what you need is is you know the the following to happen: price of ETH needs to go up enough where the quantity of ETH spent per day actually goes mm-hmm. down. Um, because if you have like, you know, picture ETH going up while fees rise on a quantity basis as well. So like back when ETH was 5k, 10 to 15k ETH per day was being spent. Um, really what you need is for the quantity to decrease as the price increases. Um, and there's some barrier where that happens, but it just implies that like things would need to get much higher in price for quantity to decrease before any of this re-rating actually happens. So I don't know, there's a lot of factors at play, but I could certainly see, and I certainly expect ETH, you know, to draw a lot of attention, capital, and just innovation in the space overall. Maybe one thing to touch on here, which actually I, I think just came out like yesterday or the day before, um, is uh, is the example of what happens when you kind of move past token incentives into something that's uh, a real yield as well. Um, synthetics and and we're you know, an investor and have been for for many years. Um, they just came out with a proposal to uh, stop inflationary rewards going to the stakers. And this would be basically a turning off of you know, a massive amount of inflation, inflationary yield every single week to synthetic stakers in lieu of just having uh, SUSD, which you kind of consider basically to be the real yield of the protocol, um, you know, going to the synthetic stakers only. Uh, and, and so I think there's you know, there is an element of like okay five percent you know that's a really tough bar to hit. You don't have to hit that right out of the get uh, go. You can have inflationary rewards be something that subsidizes growth and engagement, and frankly distributes ownership to the point where you get 
to that success benchmark of saying, okay, now we can turn off the inflationary rewards. Like, hey, we're ready to turn on just the the real yield. Um, and 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 you could maybe say that that's what Ethereum's doing. I don't think that it's really been planned to that effect, but it, it is kind of a similar one with you know getting rid of uh, a bolt of the inflationary rewards in in the form of EIP one five five nine, where you burn the transaction fees, and post merge, you're going to have lower inflationary rewards in in the first place. So th- there are some elements of how you would do this, uh, how you'd subsidize it, which I, I think are are definitely success points. Guys, if all this plays out and the debt markets really do get built in advance, all those products that you're talking about do actually get built. Right now, the only real way that folks raise capital today is with just equity issuances, right? You raise, you issue tokens and you get capital and you use that capital to grow the project. In traditional capital markets, debt is much bigger than equity, right? And so I'm curious if you guys, like how you see the debt markets playing out specifically for DAOs, right? Do DAOs go out and instead of issuing a bunch of tokens, do they... Uh, do they go raise debt? Do they raise debt on like a recurring basis b- based on like the revenue that the protocol spitting off? Is it like a one-time raise? Like, does it look kind of like what Pipe has done for for SaaS revenue? Like, how do you guys see this this role playing out? Maybe Michael, I'd throw it to you. Yeah, I, I was going to say Pipe uh, as, as a potential model here. If you have sustainable real yield in in a dollar denominated, you know, core revenue producing function. Um, there, there are a ton of new financing mechanisms that don't necessarily cost as much as early stage equity might, um, and frankly aren't as potentially burdensome or disastrous in the form of a full on debt offering, um, as you would see in, in, you know, sort of the two models that exist in, in corporate, uh, in the corporate world. How this relates to DAOs, ooh, I mean, I could see there being some flavor of somewhere in between, um, you know, having something where you have a, a debt like financing where there's some nominal yield associated with it and maybe a, a convertible element at a certain point, you know, based on some success criteria. Um, I, I personally haven't seen anything like that. But as we get to a point where you have, you know, real yields becoming the norm, you know, having these these protocols be fee generative um, such that they can sustain themselves. And you need to pull forward some of that revenue to be able to subsidize cost or or grow headcount or do something new. Um, I'm sure that there would be options for that. But to go back to kind of the original point, that's a perfect place where structured products become a, a real viable option here. Um, so that that could be, I think, you know, a, a point of innovation just in terms of the product categories. Going back to what Vance was saying, you know, building something that we can versus building something that we really need. Um, you know, this feels like if there is a demand for it, it feels like something that we both can and and potentially need to build. I, th- I think uh, maybe we can start to wind down here and just like, you know, rewinding to what we kind of talked about at the beginning of the show, right? Death of CFI, this like new era uh, of increased growth, let's say in DeFi. Um, like if you look at exchange volumes versus uh, maybe let's use the ex- uh, volumes that uh, centralized exchanges do versus decentralized exchanges. Still, the majority of the volume is in centralized exchanges, even though you're starting to see like there were days where Uniswap flipped Coinbase based in volume and, and stuff like that. Um, I'd be curious to see like just how you guys see in let's say the next bull cycle whenever that whenever that ends up coming like how large do you see DeFi being in terms of like the balance between CeFi and DeFi activity um and if you're looking at it basically in terms of like exchange volumes or if there's like a better metric that you're paying attention to i think i think next cycle like at least kind of how i expect it to play out i think we'll have probably like a trillion in in tbl locked in DeFi. that would be kind of the next high water mark we got to like 130, 140 billion, actually probably more than that. I think it was like 150 or 160 
last cycle. Um, and that was across all of the chains. Um, I think Uniswap is probably, you know, flipping Coinbase on a more consistent basis. Uh, or like Coinbase kind of gets out of the exchange business writ large. Like Michael and I were talking about this last night. Like it seems like the future of Coinbase is really, um, you know, th- you know, two or three things. One is Coinbase wallet. Two is Coinbase staking. And then three is kind of like, you know, the exchange business that they have today. And I think Coinbase wallet eventually eats their exchange business where like, you know, when you open your Coinbase app in the future, it's just your wallet and like you're, you know, trading through open source liquidity pools on chain versus like what Coinbase has on their back end. Um, and then staking is like, you know, it generated what, like $170 million in the last quarter profit. Like that feels like a business that if it grows in order of magnitude is generating, you know, as much or more business than their exchange today. And so like, I think DeFi will not only, you know, continue to grow and, and grow by, you know, an order of magnitude or two, but like, it'll kind of like fundamentally, uh, redesign a lot of the exchanges that are already in the space on the centralized side. And so I think that the products that stay really close to the chest in centralized finance are probably like the derivatives platforms. Those are the most profitable. They're also the most regulated. Um, but like there's going to be an emergence of the decentralized options for people that, you know, want to use DeFi for, you know, the four or five major reasons that I kind of outlined before. Um, but I, I think the other thing that we've noticed over the past you know year or so, so is that you know, we launched a thousand DeFi protocols collectively as an industry, maybe more. Um, and I think people are really uh, mad that not all a thousand worked and, yeah. you know, uh, not all a thousand have significant market share, but it was just never going to break down that way, frankly. And and the fact that we have 20 winners is phenomenal. And we created those in the past two or three years, like, and we're lucky to have, you know, probably five or six of those in our portfolio. Like we call that a dub and, and we, we absolutely love that. And, uh, you know, like how many more DeFi protocols will there be? Will there be, you know, 20 more? Will there be 30, 40? Will it be 100 more? I would say probably there's going to be another 20 winners when all is said and done. Maybe they're more regional. Maybe they're more regulated. Maybe they're more, you know, they just have a different angle on customer acquisition. But um, I think, yeah, that, that's kind of my perspective. I think a lot of the winners keep on winning. Um, I think the people who are still building and still innovating in the bear market are going to grow their market share. Uh, just like Uniswap has like 80 or 90% of spot AMM volume right now, you know, when the bull run picks back up, a lot of their competitors are going to be, you know, basically out of business and they're just going to eat all of that upside as the, as the bull run happens. So that's my perspective, at least the other one I would say that we haven't talked about today is Maple. Yeah. Um, and Maple is just like probably the best positioned, um, new credit creation venue in all of crypto, you know, they, they're doing like a billion, a billion five in loan originations every quarter. Um, they're growing like crazy. Their underwriting standards and innovation on that side is just like way further ahead than CFI. Um, and they're also like an interesting venue to get exposure to staking where they have like purpose built staking pools that go off and, and kind of facilitate the credit trades and carry trades that we were talking about. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're definitely one that we heavily watch for, uh, and you know, Full disclosure, we own a lot of Maple, but yeah, they're good people. They're Australians. We love them. They're great. <laughs> Vance, do you think in in, in CFI, uh, you saw basically like some of the winners, like the Coinbase's and, and FTX's and Binance's of the world, basically just try to eat market share across the board. So like an exchange would go into, uh, you know, they might launch a custody product or acquire a custody product. Then they would uh, acquire like a lend and borrow product. And then they, they would acquire like a prime brokerage type uh, uh, software platform like Coinbase acquiring Togomi. 
do, is this going to happen in DeFi? Like, will the Aves and the like the blue chips of the world eat market share from other folks, or will just you think new smaller companies like startups will will win? Like, will Uniswap and Aave and Compound expand out, or what does that look like? I mean, there's kind of like two schools of thought here. One is like the Aave and like they're launching a stable coin called Go, yeah. GHO. Right. And if you look at right. the rates between Aave and, and MakerDAO, the rates on Aave are usually a little bit higher just because like they're not able to just like hypothecate the stable coin out of thin air relative to Maker. And, you know, them creating their own stable coin is just like a direct shot at Maker. They're trying to basically vertically integrate, lower their cost of capital, get more market share. And so I think like, you know, there will be some people who choose to do that. Frankly, like that's more of an opportunity that's available to international teams that are outside of the US. Um, like I remember when Compound was going to have their own chain, was going to have their own stable coin. Like none of those plans came to fruition, I think for a number of different reasons, but one of them was probably regulatory. And so like it kind of really matters like, um, you know, where you're domiciled. You have a lot more degrees of freedom, freedom if you're international. Um, and yeah, I mean, look at what Synthetix is doing versus what DYDX is doing. You know, it's like a very night and day comparison in terms of, you know, like how aggressive they're being on the ecosystem side, on the incentivization side, on the vertical integration side. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to see both approaches, um, but some people are going to be able to do it and, and others just won't. Yeah. All right, guys, really appreciate your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, we will see you next week for the roundup. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, man. Man, Michael and Vance, wealth of knowledge there. What do you think of the episode? Uh, really good episode. Really good first episode, just kind of setting everything up and framing the conversation for the entire season. Uh, yeah, I'm always impressed talking to those guys. Just they have a wealth of knowledge of not just what has happened, but I will say like what is coming down the pike. Yeah, I would say that too. To just walk through everything, again, to reiterate, the reason that we wanted to talk to these guys is I think they were the ones who really planted this idea in our heads of the death of CFI and like a new uh, reinvigorated growth in DeFi, let's say. I thought they did a really good job of just recapping what the advantages were of DeFi over CFI, right? So with CFI, you've got the opacity, right? You have no trans, like no visibility. But then there's also that persistent risk of rehypothecation that you have in CFI. And there's the, even if you do everything right, uh, you know, even if you manage your own risk appropriately, you know, your lender, uh, the person who's lending or the person that you're depositing your assets with on the CFI side of things cannot be good. And then there, you just basically have no recourse and they're more power. And there are constant stories about this. Like Marco Hodes has a really, if you want like a TradFi analog, go see what happened with Marco Hodes and Goldman Sachs, right? Um, <laughs> really, really, uh, you know, not great stuff. And you have very little ability to recourse. Wait, what, what happened power. with Marco Hodes? I don't know that story. Um, I mean, Marco is a very famous short seller. Um, I forget which which position this was of his at the time, but basically he was completely in the right and he managed his margin requirements right and everything. His side of the story, but it's been corroborated pretty widely. Uh, and Goldman just seized his collateral. Anyway, close, stopped his trade out at a big loss. Um, hmm. And he eventually ended up being right on the trade. Anyway, you can hear him talk about it on some episodes of Grant Williams, but like this is, I've, I've heard the constant, you know, this this happens to short sellers in particular. Uh, it's It's a big challenge. So just understanding who your counterparty is, there's only so much that you can do and only so much recourse you can have in a C5 type system. Yeah. What do you think about Vance's idea that retail would actually be the first to flow into DeFi? I I completely agree with that. Yeah. I, I think the the obstacles to uh, institutional DeFi is still there. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that's the big... The obstacle you know, being what? Like the KYC, AML, the KYC, not, they don't trust it. The KYC, it. AML, yeah. and then also just the, the mental 
the, yeah. like even just listening to Michael, right? Like Michael and Vance are some of the most DeFi natives that you'll you'll ever find. And even they still have like apprehensions about moving their assets on a bridge, right? And right. their layer of trust, like their real trust really doesn't extend that far out past Ethereum main chain. So there's just a lot, you know, you, you gotta you gotta deal with like the mental barrier for like an older uh, demographic in TradFi, but then you also have to deal with like, it's much more highly regulated and there's career risk that's associated for them. That isn't necessarily the key. Like if Michael and, and Vance like lose some, I mean, I mean, it wouldn't be good for them either, but like it would be really unacceptable, right? If like a pension fund, you know, loses money in crypto and then everyone's like, well, what did you think? It's a scam. So I think I totally agree that retail is going to be the first to move in in a big way. But I do think for our thesis, right, to relate this back, uh, the, the reason why we focused the two legs of the discussion on the market for options and derivatives and then the market for products is, again, there's an inherent link between deep markets, which are fueled by speculation, and those are traditionally derivatives markets. That's like that's the clay that goes into building new financial products, right? Because the transformation that occurs from variable to fixed interest is basically you're basing it, basing it on a floating variable rate like LIBOR. You want to isolate a part of that. And you the way that you do that is via an options market. So you need this deep speculative-based um, market where there's a bunch of leverage. Uh, and that's an options market. And then you need that for there to be uh, new financial product creation. And I think that's the biggest, we should really be diving into that for the rest of our thesis, because I think the biggest risk there is just time. And, you know, it, we might be early on that part of that leg of the thesis, I think. But that's something that you and I should just be aware of and like continue to ask guests moving forward yeah. in the future. I think they made a good point too, that the introduction of perps into the crypto markets will probably slow down, def uh, will slow down options. Mm. I, I think it's, well, actually, I I want to double check this, but I'm actually, I think Vance might have been slightly wrong. I actually think the PERP contract actually does exist in TradFi. Is it, it had just been, never been widely popularized, actually. I didn't know that. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure it has been. Let me, I'll, we'll, we'll double check that and put it in the show notes. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the PERP actually has existed. I think, I'm actually not sure, you know, Perp's the big advantage there. It just it concentrates liquidity, right? If you right. you know if you have options markets, then you have different expiries at different prices, and suddenly you could basically be trying to hedge the same thing, which is your exposure to Ethereum or something like that. But if it's if you're doing it on a certain expiry, then suddenly you just you just fragment liquidity. So there are some there are some definite disadvantages to Perp's as well. But I think that's the big one that Perp's has. But at the end of the day, I don't think it matters if it's Perp's or if it's options or whatever it is. Uh, basically, you just need, need that ability to to lock certain things in and, and hedge. Yeah. So I love the conversation talking about the ability to create new products, right? If you are an, in, an innovator in finance and you want to innovate in finance, you have to go work at Goldman. You have to convince the risk team and the tech teams. And it takes years and years to go build a new product. But in, in, in DeFi, you know, it takes sometimes weeks or months, right? You know who transformed this, this view of the world for me is Matt Levine when he talked about like brokerages or banks are investment stores. And like you or I have different needs, right? Like you and I have different needs. Like, hey, you need a computer, you need a phone. That's like very easy to understand. But we also have different financial needs, right? I need access to borrow so that I can afford to buy a house. I need access to borrow so that I can afford to buy a car. I need, like, I want to be able to take, I have this particular bet on how I think the future is going to unfold. I need you to create a product so that I can get exposure to my particular view. Banks, hedge funds, brokerages, they're, they're all, they're creators and then distributors of different financial products. It's just the the system that they have to create, manufacture those products and distribute them to the masses. It's a very legacy type system. I think the big advantage of DeFi is it just reduces the friction of product creation and distribution times X. You know, I also think for what it's worth, that's why 
people in TradFi get DeFi so much more intuitively and so much faster than they do Bitcoin. That's completely anecdotal, yeah. but yeah. I think they, because they understand what financial services are and how they get marketed and distributed much better than the average person who, if you were to say that a brokerage is basically distribution, they'd be like, what? A brokerage is where I go to buy stocks. It, it just doesn't compute in the same way, I think, that it does for TradFi people. Yeah. Clear something up for me. So Vance mentioned that that a lot of people think that the 5% rate on on staking is going to pull capital is is potentially net negative for for DeFi. My understanding of why people think that is because it uh like if you can get 4% on a on a protocol and like in a pool or something, but you can get 5% just staking your ETH, then that's going to pull capital out of the pools. But it sounded like when you you had a di- different interpretation and so like what can you just tell me so, so yes to yes to both. It all okay. has to do with opportunity cost, right? right? So what would happen today if the Fed raised interest rates to 5%? Yeah, capital gets pulled out of stocks, right? Right, exactly. Capital gets pulled out. But the reason why, but capital wouldn't get pulled out if the rate of return for stocks was 10%. The reason why interest rates are where they are is because markets collectively don't think you can earn higher than a certain percentage return on your other options, right? People are very concerned about that other rate of return. The reason why it might work with a higher percent, uh, like a 5% real yield, right? Risk-free yield, real yield, that like your 5% is your hurdle rate, essentially, for new types of investments, is crypto is growing like crazy, right? Like the growth isn't really the worry quite so much, I think, in this space as it is for, for TradFi. So you're, that's, what, that's like the distinction as well between where the Fed controls interest rates at the shallow end of the curve, which right. is where banks borrow. Versus the long end of the curve, which is less determined by what central banks are doing and more determined by where people think growth is going. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. So the reason why there's you need to the Fed is basically had to lower their 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 uh, their interest rate is because their understanding of the economy is that it cannot bear a higher hurdle rate. Whereas in crypto, um, it we actually do it, it is possible that you actually could bear that higher hurdle rate. And the reason why that's ultimately better is because if your your hurdle rate for new investments is 5% as opposed to 1%, then all of the new investments that get funded will return at least 6%. Whereas all of the new investments that get funded in in finance, in TradFi, in the economy today, won't return as much because the cost of capital is much lower. Mm. Does does that make sense? That makes sense. Yep. That's why we have all these zombie companies. Yeah. Like that's, that's why lowering interest rates to a certain point is actually counterproductive because it encourages malinvestment. Yeah. What's coming next? This was a really good episode to kick off the season. What is the next episode? What are we talking about uh, with Tushar? So we're talking about two things with Tushar, right? So here's what we covered on this episode where it relates to the thesis. And I think we were largely validated, right? What I think we did cover in depth is that we see a, a much diminished presence of CFI in this current cycle. But moving forward after that, it gets less and less and less and less. So almost like the new Bitcoin dominance, right? Which is just like, that's been a one-way track down, essentially. And I think that's what CFI uh, is going to be relative to DeFi moving forward as well. So I, I came away from this conversation pretty confident that that's going to be the case. What we're going to be talking to Tushar about is two different things. One, we're going to be talking about interest rate swaps. So that's actually the market that performs that alchemy of transforming variable rate into fixed rates, right? So a swap is basically you're swapping future cash flows. So people use it to like hedge interest rates, but they also use it for for um, uh, you know options and things like that. So, so uh, interest rate swap markets in crypto, DeFi native interest rate swaps. Tushar also was the one who gave us the idea of 
okay, largely what token financing is, is that some form of equity financing. And that's what catalyzes booms in crypto. We're, we want to get his opinion on whether or not we think debt financing, right? The creation of a new suite of credit products, whether that can kick off a bull wave in crypto in the same way that equity financing token distribution innovation has in the past. That's why we're, that's what we're going to be talking to him about. That episode drops next week. If you guys are excited about it, hit the subscribe button. Anything else, Mike? That's it. See yeah. you next week. <laughs> See you next week.